Good morning. I'm Wimala, and today is Friday, March the 18th. So, today we have an overcast day. Our temperatures are supposed to get colder and then get sunny again next week. So, of course, that's part of, uh, that's part of the ups and downs of the everyday world, right? And that's what we're learning how to deal with and still be able to be happy and still be able to be, uh, to develop those, those uh, beautiful qualities. And uh, that's what Buddhism is all about, how to be, how to live in the world, in a world that's unpredictable, uh, that's full of greed, hatred, and delusion, and to learn how to work with all of that and be the best person we can be and have a good life. And hopefully, whatever good we do is influencing or being uh, being noted in the real world, and people may see some of what we have and want it for themselves if they think that, they, that we're peaceful and have all of those good qualities. They may just, I don't, that energy may, they may feel that kind of energy. So, uh, we never can predict that, but what we're trying to do is understand our world and how it operates and then do better, right? <laughs> do better than the, than, the, than the world, the world of samsara. So that makes it be, that's a good teacher to have a cloudy, uh, brisk, day after some days of beautiful spring-like, spring-like weather. So that's, that's always the first teacher of the day, right? For, think about what your first teacher of the day is. Uh, over the last few years, the first teacher of my day is probably the weather. How's the weather? How's it changing? How's it the same? Uh, and, oh, does it, uh, does it change my plans for the day, or does it, uh, you know, that, that's always a good teacher for me, so that we have no control over the weather, so that's, we've got to work with it. Well, we're getting to an exciting part, maybe uh, uh, exciting to me is a little bit more understandable part of our book. We're reading... Buddhadasa Bhikkhu's book, Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree, the Buddha's teachings on voidness, or anatta, and it's sunyata, or anatta, that's the no-self. And it's uh, Buddhadasa Bhikkhu says that it has to be, we have to, this is one of those things we have to really under uh, study to understand. So, um, Dependent origination is one of those things, and uh, voidness or no self. We really have to study it to understand the importance of it. So he basically has been telling us that that sunyata, that that qual, that what we're looking for is that ability to let go of those of living within the concepts of me and mine, to let go of that to see things clearly and to see to see the kind of freedom we can have is to get beyond 
me, mine, this is how who I am, all of those kind of personal tags and personal identities. Because as long as we have all of those operating within us, we aren't seeing things clearly. We're seeing them through the lens of who we think we are or who what we who or what we think belongs to us or is in our field of control. So we just the last one we uh, the last little section we're on levels of sunyata so it's good we're talking about levels because we're not going to be able to jump to the fully liberated uh completely there it's a it's a long process uh but it was liberated into voidness we talked about that Uh, The same way we practice mindfulness with breathing stage by stage. Uh, Developing the contemplations of the body, of the feelings, of the mind, and of Dhamma. So even, even practicing mindfulness, we have to do it stage by stage. We have to remember the components. Mindfulness with breathing is a continuous tasting of sunyata. And this is what we read from this yesterday. Is a continuous tasting of sunyata from start to finish. Finally, one understands voidness through seeing the painful consequences of grasping and clinging. Then the mind will immediately turn to find contentment with the experience of Nibbana. We are able to see sunyata continually, step by step, before actually reaching its supreme levels. So, here is our next. Oh, and I love this sentence when he says, As for happiness, we don't have to do anything much to make ourselves happy. We needn't go to any great trouble. All we must do is to void our minds of greed, hatred, and delusion. In other words, make it void of grasping at and clinging to I and mind. So if you're confused by all of this, just remember those few sentences I just read. Now, this is voiding comma is the next section of this chapter. In the Anguttara Nikaya, and Nikayas are those uh, books of suttas, and the Anguttara Nikaya is one of those one of those books. The Buddha states that when the mind is void of greed, hatred, and delusion, is void of I and mine, then kama ends by itself. This means that kama and kama is uh, action, and when it's intentional, when our action is intentional, it creates that. Uh, it creates that pattern where eventually, you know, we have to take responsibility for everything we do with intention, with, with intentionality. This means that kama, its result, which is the result of kama, is what happens when we do something, is called vipaka. And the mental defilements, which are the causes for the creation of kama, spontaneously and simultaneously, come to an end. We needn't fear kama, thinking that we must be ruled by our kama. Uh, 
we needn't be interested in kama. Rather, we should take an interest in sunyata. If we make I and mine void, kama will utterly disintegrate and will have no power to make us follow its dictates. That's how powerful this I and mine and needing to uh, let that go is because we won't be doing, we won't be doing anything. Uh, there won't be any intentional uh, uh, in, intentional action that can cause us to have karma that we have to reap vipaka from. For this reason, someone like Angulimala, he's the murderer who cut off people's uh, fingers after he killed them, for this reason, someone like Angulimala, the murderer, could become an arahant. He could become enlightened in the same lifetime. Please don't explain Angulimala's story wrongly, as is often done. <laughs> he did not become an arahant merely by not killing. The Buddha said to Angulimala, I have stopped, you have not stopped. Please don't say that not stopped means that Angulimala was still killing people and that he became an arahant because he stopped murdering. Anyone who explains a story like that is badly misinterpreting the Buddha. When the Buddha used the word stop, he was referring to the stopping of I and mine. I've got to really listen to this because I've told that story so many times. I love the story of Angulimala. I need to check and make sure. I haven't been mistelling it. When the Buddha used the word stop, he was referring to the stopping of I and mine, to the stopping of grasping and clinging. In short, voidness is stopping, and only this kind of stopping could make Angulimala an arahant. If to stop murdering is all it took, why aren't all people who don't kill Wait, if to stop murdering is all it took, why aren't all people who don't kill arahants? I get it. So, so if to stop murdering is all it took, why aren't all people who don't kill arahants? Why aren't, why isn't everyone who doesn't murder uh, an, an awakened being? Why aren't we all arahants? True stopping is the voidness in which there is no self to dwell anywhere, to come or go anywhere, to do anything. This is true stopping. That's, there is no self to dwell anywhere, to come or go anywhere, to do anything. This is true stopping. If there is still a self, then you can't stop. So we should understand that the word void has the same meaning as stop. The single word by which the Buddha turned Angulimala into an arahant, even though the killer's hands were still red with blood and his neck was still hung with the 999 finger bones of his victims, for Kama to end by itself to really stop, we must 
rely on this single word, sunyata, being void of I and mine, not grasping at or clinging to any dhammas. Those are the, at least I use those I use that uh, those words that the Buddha is saying Angulimala I have stopped. Why haven't you? Uh, well, that's a, now I can remember that story is a much even more powerful. He stopped because everything that propelled him to to do those murders was who he thought he was, and uh, uh, what his teacher had told him to do, and kind of a madness that came over him when uh, his teacher had his teacher essentially had betrayed him and created a kind of madness in him. And uh, so Angulimala had to let all of that go. So uh, that's that's beautiful. I love that story, but this this now will be my sunyata story. Yoga of voidness. The Buddha taught that yoga means seeing the noble truth. Arayasacha dasana. Therefore, the activity of making the mind void may be called Buddhist yoga. That makes sense. Although the Vedanta tradition is concerned with the realization of an ultimate self, we can borrow from it the term Raja Yoga, which means the highest level or summit of yoga. And yoga means spiritual endeavor. In, uh, in the Vedanta tradition. However, in the Buddhist teachings, yoga refers to the realization of voidness to making sunyata manifest. Any action that leads to the manifestation of voidness may be called yoga. Remember, this is in the Buddhist tradition. Uh, often a yogi is a person who, who meditates. In Buddhism, yogi means meditator. Any action that leads to the manifestation of voidness may be called yoga, but the word must be understood in this manner for it to be Buddhist yoga. It means making the ultimate truth evident. So, making the ultimate truth evident. I like that. We should use this yoga in every mental action so as to stop all grasping at and clinging to I and mine. Thus, we borrow the word yoga from another tradition and adapt its meaning appropriately. Take, for example, the Vedanta term karma yoga. That's the yoga of action. It means being unselfish, acting unreservedly for the benefit of others. We Buddhists, too, have this yoga. If there is no ego consciousness, whatever we do will be karma yoga. If there is no ego consciousness, whatever we do will be karma yoga, the yoga of action. Even with more basic yoga, such as making merit, doing good, sacrificing for others, and helping mankind, 
All action must be performed with a mind void of I and mine. Everything becomes yoga when done without I and mine. We don't seek after other kinds of yoga, for they all come down to this one yoga, the spiritual endeavor of putting an end to self and the belongings of self. We don't seek any other kinds of yoga, for they all come down to this one yoga, the spiritual endeavor of putting an end to self and the belongings of self. They all come down to manifesting sunyata. Okay, now he's not saying it's don't don't do yoga with your yoga teacher in the studio, but he's explaining the difference between Vedanta uh, yoga, the term yoga, and the term that we use in Buddhism, that the Buddha used. It sounds, it feels in my throat like it's going to be an allergy day. The wind's blowing. So I think that's, there's only one more section for this chapter, but I think let's leave it until um, Sunday, because this is uh, really, he's really stressing, and I think very effectively, how important this concept is to the basic uh, to the basic concepts that the Buddha was trying to teach. So we don't want to take it too fast because it would be it's good if we if it can be something that we can ponder or sit with. Um, I think that that can help all of us just to think about that. What does that and what is our understanding so far about what it means to let go of me and mine? This is not who I am. This is not me. This, this is not mine. Um, it can really, it, it can really, even at the most basic level, what it does a lot of times for me is help me back away from a situation that I want to fix or control or uh, think that I have, let's see, what does Susan ask? What does one let go of? How does one let go of self and our human needs, such as relationships and connections? That is my suffering. I think we can, I truly think we can have very beautiful relationships and we can have our human needs for other people in our lives relationships, connection. But what he's telling us, let go of grasping and clinging. So we can have the most beautiful relationship with someone we love dearly, like a mother loves her children, or uh, beautiful, if, if you have a beautiful relationship with a spouse, or how close we feel to our family members. I think we can enjoy all of that. But without that concept of this is mine, because then that causes us to grasp on and to cling. And uh, how, how one of the ways I see it manifesting when, when it does in me 
and even in people who might who might come to me and and uh, be having a problem in relationships, is there still that clinging to it and grasping to it? Like this is how I define myself. If I don't have this title or this relationship or this kind of job or this kind of lifestyle, uh, or I def- if you define yourself by those people instead of just being and and seeing them as other beings in our world that we that we can love and cherish and uh, have a deep understanding of and have a have deep satisfaction from we can do that without the grasping and the clinging and and that feeling that uh, somehow they belong to us or somehow it's our job if we to fix them if they're broken it's our job to see that they're successful you know we i'm i'm a mother so i know i know how deep those go even with kids who are in their you know they're both 30 something um i see how deep it goes for me to want to i still want to try to 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 uh they're still they're they're still clinging you know i mean I, but I feel like I'm always learning about how to let that go a little bit. And it's when I see them kind of tighten up it. Maybe I make too many suggestions or maybe I'm too concerned about uh, relationships or if they're, if they're eating well or getting enough sleep or, you know, it's, it's in little things that we think is kind of an extension of mothering, but it's probably pretty irritating to them. Um, but we're not letting, we're not jumping off a cliff and then saying, okay, now make me be happy. Yeah. And if we, so how do we let go? If, if, if we have had a relationship in that was not our choice. And if that creates loneliness or a feeling of a lack of connection, I think we have to remember that we, it's that loneliness we can experience in life. That's part of being a human. And sometimes it's helpful when we can let go of a relationship. the, the, The not letting go when a relationship is over, the not releasing that, uh, relationship is because We've identified too strongly with it, uh, and and it takes us longer. You know, you know, you'll get over it, but it takes a much longer time because it created that relationship. Probably was like at the center of your relationships with others, and we define ourselves. We begin to define ourselves through that relationship, or we're used to. Sometimes it's because we're just used to someone. And uh, when they're when they're gone, even if it's been our choice to let go, uh, we can we can feel very lonely. We can feel it's it's as if someone has died, and we come we come home, and there's no one there to share the day with. I think if we if we just gently gently start uh, thinking about what it, what we think of, what do we what do you think of that's mine you know what is mine 
who, uh, well, we don't need to worry about who am I, but, you know, we might worry about who would I be without this relationship? Because even when we marry someone, we should be uh, willing to let them go. Uh, and that's maybe not kick them out, but may, willing to let them go if they need to go or if we need to go. And even our ch- our children grow up, whether we like it or not. And uh, wouldn't that be terrible if we could be allowed to keep our children at some perfect age? I mean, that's kind of a that's kind of what we're doing when we think a. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just so bereft because my kids are gone, my my spouse has left or uh, died, or good friends have gone. Because it's that's in a way that's saying we want to freeze them at a certain point and keep them. So the answer is to begin to think about what we're clinging to, or what we think is, uh, who who am I? And uh, I, I know when I decided to uh, no longer be a nun, no longer to be a bhikkhuni, that was a very, very hard decision, because that's, that's what I had been for 14 years. That was a great part of my identity, and I could see how easy clinging to it could be. Um, and the and it, the comfort of it. Now I have to deal with all this hair growing out, you know, and, and what to wear. And uh, no, those are very superficial things. But there, there, there is a deep attachment to the roles we play. When people retire, when we, uh, my mom lived to be ninety-seven, and it's it's been very. Um, I can really feel. Uh, that loss, and she and she was even living in a different state. But I, though those parts of the day when I would be thinking about her, calling her, um, that's those are very poignant to me. So this is the bit, but this is the world we live in, and this is this is the only way we can really be truly happy is to be able to see those things not be within our control. Uh, We can enjoy them and love them and make the most of them. I mean, if anything else, it will make you, you can love someone more because you're not afraid of the, uh, the, the, the impermanence of all things. So you can love them very much, but not let them, not take them into your, uh, permanently as, you know, part of you. So there's so much more to learn, but just remember that you, a lot of our relationship issues, we will heal. We heal from those, and then we're surprised that we we do. And uh, we can become friends again with friends we've lost or uh, spouses that we've, or uh, intimate relationships we've had to walk away from, or they've walked away from us, we heal. And part of why we heal is that we become wiser, and we know nothing is permanent. That's the preciousness of the Buddhist teachings. Not even me, mine, you know, who I am, it's not permanent. 
We change all the time. And relationships do too. So just let these teachings, uh, think about them. Let them, let, let them come up in your life. Like, what do we think of? What are we clinging to? And, uh, are, where are there, like, how do we, how is it that we cling to people? We don't, think about if you know children and, uh, even if you just know or you remember being a child, how much you changed all the time and how, uh, we, you didn't want someone to sit on you and squash you and we don't want to have that feeling. And then that can become even how we feel as we're trying not to cling and not to grasp. Because we're all, we always want to be able to grow and, and become wiser and happier. So I have gone way over my time. So today, uh, please, please sit at least for five minutes or at least for three minutes and just be with your breath. And let that be your, let that beautiful breath, coming back to the breath, be there. So thank you so much. And thank you for being willing to ask your questions. And I'm certainly not giving the best answers available, but it's, it's from what I know, what I have experienced. And I think that's why this concept is so important in Buddhism and so important for us personally to really understand the story of Angulimala is, it's, it's, that's wonderful because he, he was driven crazy by his need to be, uh, he was very, uh, a very advanced spiritual person. But he was driven crazy by his teacher telling him, oh, you know, your wife's been unfaithful and, uh, and the only way, you know, you can get out of this situation and be a good student is to go and kill all these people. And he was so torn by what a terrible thing you're asking me to do, but I'm your student. You're my teacher. Uh, I love my wife so much. I can't believe that she's done that. And of course his wife hadn't hadn't done anything, but the teacher was jealous of the, of Angulimala. So, well, he wasn't called Angulimala then, because Angulimala means a, like a necklace of digits. <laughs> but he, he was driven crazy because he, he was deluded, he was deluded, and who he was was so important in his relationship with his wife and with his teacher and with how he was how he was seen in the world and all the things he believed came crashing down, he thought. And that's why the Buddha said, why haven't you stopped? You're still hanging on. So thank you so much, and I'll be here Sunday morning. And may everything that we all do and say and think today be done for our own benefit and be done also for the benefit of all beings everywhere. <laughs>